As we continue our study in Paul's epistle to the Romans, we see Paul trying to heal the growing divide between the Gentile and Jewish converts to Christianity living in Rome. Paul uses examples from the scriptures, from marriage practices, and even agriculture to teach that including Gentiles in his people was always part of God's plan and that everyone is united in Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to another episode of Gospel Doctrine. If you're just joining us, this is a podcast where we discuss the Come Follow Me lessons in the Sunday School Curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today I'd like to give a shout out to a few people, uh, specifically the people I, I met with this last week who mentioned that they're spreading the word about the podcast, um, which always touches me a lot. So uh, I'd like to shout out to Laura in Salt Lake, to Scott in Park City, and to Melissa, Jacob, Joel, and Will in Raleigh. And uh, Joel and Will, just like to say, you two are probably the youngest people who've ever been excited to meet me uh, because of my podcast, and uh, I, I was very, very touched by that. Also, I send a shout-out to Camilla in Rexburg. Uh, Camilla let me know that she puts her, ba- her new three-month-old baby to sleep listening to my podcast, which is not the purpose it was originally intended for, but I do approve that use. Speaking of falling asleep to the scriptures, I've had, for years, I've had problems sleeping, and this week uh, it was a little easier because the book of Romans is quite dense, so I found myself dozing off more than once while reading uh, this week's lesson. So if you find the language of Romans a little dense, a little difficult, you're not alone. Uh, Nevertheless, extremely profitable, a wonderful book, and uh, has a lot to teach us, as we'll find out. As always, if you have questions, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Now, I'm going to do something new with your questions. Uh, I don't have a question. It's interesting. I don't. I have a lot of listeners, but I don't have a, a question every week about the scriptures. And uh, sometimes I ask people who tell me they're listening, I ask them about that, and they always say, I wish I knew more so that I could ask questions, which always seems to me to miss the point of questions. However... I thought I'd try something new, which is I'd invite you to, if you have a question about anything in life, if you have a question about how to handle a problem with your family or how to deal with returning home from a mission, whatever it might be, send it into the show, gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and I will try to use that week's lesson to illustrate my response to what your question is, and if not, then I will pull some scripture in, and uh, maybe we can begin a scriptural conversation uh, that, that is more applied to us today, and I'll, I'll begin the show with that every week if I get enough of your responses. Also, of course, I appreciate your reviews, especially your iTunes five-star reviews. They are very helpful in helping new people discover the podcast and begin listening, and this week we just launched on Spotify. So if you'd like to listen to the podcast on Spotify, please let me know how that works for you since I am not a subscriber. Okay, the book of Romans, second part. Um, If you'll remember, last week we spent some time learning some Greek and Hebrew words 
that helped us to understand what Paul was getting at. So I'll briefly review those. First of all, we have the works that Paul talks about. So in Romans, they, and the reason I'm going over these is because they will figure into all of, Paul, all of the Pauline epistles as, as we're beginning to study them. So it's profitable now to learn these words. When Paul talks about works, he, especially when he is addressing a community of uh, saints that includes both Jews and Gentiles, he's generally talking about works that are included, the commandments that are included in the Torah. And these works, uh, the, the Greek word is erga. And so whenever, you, whenever we talk about works, it's, the, it's these works, these erga, that are considered by many Jewish saints to lead them towards salvation. And especially Jews who have not yet been converted to Christianity, they believe that, uh, in many cases, that it was their works that would save them. When Paul talks about grace, this word is the, the Greek word is charis, and you can, you can recognize that as the root of our charity. So this is the, the love of God. It's the disproportionate love that God feels toward mankind, this covenant love. Uh, and, and we likened it last week to the love of a mother for her children, but even more so. The Old Testament equivalent of that is chesed. Now, when, we, uh, when Paul talks about righteousness, that's an interesting word because in the Old Testament there are two Hebrew words that generally that that most often are rendered in English as righteousness. One is chesed, this this covenant love, this disproportionate love that in the New Testament we find expressed as the word grace. And the other is tzedakah. And tzedakah is the expression of righteousness in a more uh, classical sense, right action but also right relationships. So Paul expresses that idea with the word justification. So when our relationship with God, with God is put right, he calls it being justified. And specifically in today's lesson, he describes Abraham as being justified before God, or it was counted unto him for righteousness. Uh, and that means that Abraham was considered to be in a right relationship with God. So the the concept of grace and the concept of justification are closely tied together by their Hebrew and Greek roots. Now, the reason that I, I mention Hebrew is, although Paul wrote these letters in Greek, Paul's native language was, uh, or at least a, a language that he learned very early on and the language of his original religious instruction would have been Hebrew. And so the, the concepts that he brings to life in Greek would, for him, have existed in his heart in Hebrew. And uh, so Paul, I imagine at least, that Paul was writing these letters, he was translating in his mind from Hebrew to Greek as he wrote. This is my guess. So that's why I mentioned these these Hebrew words. The the Hebrew concepts, the, the concepts from the Hebrew scriptures are underlying what Paul writes about in Greek. Finally, we mentioned that uh, last week we talked about how pistis is this idea of faith. It's, it's the word that, that's most commonly rendered faith, but uh, modern scholars more and more are beginning to see an aspect of pistis that goes beyond mere belief and goes into choice and even loyalty or allegiance. And so what we talked about last week is when we read faith, we can, we can substitute the word allegiance rather than simply belief. Um, so those are some of the concepts that, we, that uh, understanding of the vocabulary will bring in. There's one passage that I want to mention from last week, 
And uh, that is Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and f- three to 5. And the reason I want to mention that is uh, that there are a few scriptures that I had that I made recourse to more on my mission than these being in a Catholic country than these verses, because they clearly illustrate that baptism was always intended to be by immersion. However, it also teaches, for those who already accept that baptism is by immersion, immersion it teaches, Paul, or, or let me put it another way, Paul's original intent was to show that Jews and Gentiles, when they are baptized, they're united in Christ. And so your old life, whatever you were before you became a Christian, now you're a follower of Christ and you're part of the family of God. Uh, and when you're, when you're reborn, we'll talk a little bit when, the, when it comes up in the lesson about what it means to be reborn. So that's, uh, that's Romans 6, 3 through 5. Okay, so our lesson begins in Romans chapter 7. And Paul starts, uh, Paul starts the scriptures from this week's lesson by likening the law to uh, a woman who's married to a man who dies. So Paul says, of course, the law is binding on you, you Jews. The, the law, meaning the Torah, the law of Moses, it's been binding on you throughout human history. And all of a sudden, for you to find yourself free of it feels very strange. But let me liken it to this woman. She's, of course, she's been spending her whole life married to a man. There was no way that she could marry another man while her husband was alive. It would have been adultery. But when her husband dies, then she can feel free to marry another man, and she's not committing sin. Paul likens this to what happened when Jesus Christ worked out his atonement. It, it didn't, for a Jew then, to begin to worship Christ and follow God in another way doesn't mean that he's being unfaithful to his earlier covenants. It means that the old things are done away and the time is now appropriate for, uh, for Jews to follow God in a new way. I, I was thinking about this lesson or this particular object lesson of Paul's, and I wanted to put it in my own terms. Uh, I, I may have mentioned before that I run an aviation business. So when a, when a pilot is training, uh, oftentimes they, they have recourse to a simulator. And this, this to me feels like a very, uh, a very illustrating example, so I'll share it with you. So a pilot training in a simulator has certain actions that they'll perform and certain things that are taken really seriously and certain things that are not. But when the time comes to be done with training in a simulator, then the then old things are done away and it's time to go up in the real airplane. And so what the the point of Paul's talking about the law is to say, look, you think that these erga, these works of the law have been saving you, but all they were was pointing you to something that was going to be real. The law was simply a type of Christ. Salvation didn't come through the law. Salvation came through what the law pointed to. And uh, a pilot training in a simulator is not actually learning to, is not actually flying. He's, He's training on something that is pointing him to one day being able to fly. And I shouldn't say him, there are plenty of female pilots out there. Uh, And so once you begin to train in an actual airplane, then everything that you studied in a simulator, you can see that it has application, but you realize you weren't actually flying. And that, to me, that feels like the point that Paul is trying to make about the, the law. It was simply an object lesson that would teach us about the real source of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. 
that to me feels like what he's getting at with this, uh, this widow object lesson. That's in chapter 7. And Paul goes on to talk about how the law brings sin to life. Now, one thing I want to say about Paul's uh, use of, Paul's speaking in the first person here during, during uh, these chapters is, it seems to me like Paul is speaking of himself as, in the sense not of me, Paul, but me, a man, me, any person, me, a Jew throughout history. So he'll say, we were brought by the law unto life, unto death, etc. And then when Christ appeared, this happened. What he's saying is, a person born, born during the time of Moses, a Jew bo- born during the time of Moses, was awakened by the law to a sense of his own sinfulness. And in, in, in that particular way, then he, w- he was brought to death, meaning uh, he, he was committing the sins before, but not being aware of them, he wasn't as separated from God by guilt. And once the law made him aware that he was being sinful and made him aware of his duty to repent, then, then death came into the picture. Death meaning a separation from God. And Paul, this is, this is the imagery that Paul is using when he talks about death, that the law brings death, this is what he means. And he's also not meaning me, Paul. He's meaning me, every Jew, every person who's ever tried to follow Jehovah. And by extension, the Gentiles who care about God. So just to give an example of a couple of verses in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was that then which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, you would be forgiven for thinking that this is strange language. And at the time that this was translated into English, this is the way people talked, but this is not the way that we speak now. So you'd be forgiven for wanting to read this in another translation. And as I said last week, I recommend it. If you go to BibleHub.com, you can choose uh, some of the translations that I recommend. You can choose the translation you want to read the the works in. Um, and you can also choose, obviously, the book and the chapter and the verse just right at the upper left. So some of the translations I like are the Good News Translation, abbreviated GNT, the New International Version, abbreviated NIV, and the New American Standard Bible, abbreviated NAS or NASB. So as you read, I mean, obviously the authorized translation for Latter-day Saints is the King James Version, and there are a lot of very good reasons for that. So it's it's good to read the King James Version. However, I, I don't know that I would read it first. I would probably try to understand the sense of what's going on by reading it in an easier translation. So in chapter 7, this is what Paul's talking about. He is dealing with the, the inner conflict. Um, another concept that he, that he introduces in this, uh, well, in, in ch- he begins in chapter 6, carries it through several chapters, is the idea of the natural man. And the, the symbol of the natural man, that, or the personification of this idea of the natural man, is Adam. So when Paul is talking about Adam, what he's really, he's using Adam as a metaphor, and that, in fact, is what Adam is, right? Because Adam's name itself means man or humankind. And 
so when Paul says, this is what happened with Adam, Adam was awakened to sinfulness, etc., and by Adam came the fall, what he's saying is, our natural, human, fleshy, uh, earthly existence, the way that we care about uh, sinful things, the way we care about the cares of this world, all of that is part of the natural man, and that is symbolized or personified in Adam. And what Christ, what uh, Paul calls Christ is the second Adam. And so by contrasting Adam with Jesus Christ, Paul is contrasting our carnal existence and the way we think carnally or the way we succumb to temptations with our spiritual existence and the way we're willing to be humble before God and choose righteousness. So these, this is an ongoing contrast that Paul makes. And whenever you hear him talking about Adam, this is what he means. He's talking about the natural man. And uh, one thing that I'm going to do, if you're hearing echoes of Mosiah chapter 3, verse 19, then you're not wrong. There is a a very high correlation between several of the ideas expressed in Romans and the ideas expressed in the Book of Mormon. And what I did was, after I finished reading the lesson, I went back and uh, I made a list of every time I felt like something evoked a powerful or specific passage in the Book of Mormon and made a note of it. So um, that's how we're going to end the lesson today is me going back and discussing each of those. But for right now, we'll, we'll skip the obvious, what to us feels like uh, an obvious parallel with the Book of Mormon and just talk about what Paul's discussing. So Paul begins to talk about how the natural man leads unto death. And this is, I mean, this is powerful imagery because when you read the story of the fall, that was the promise, that was the curse that was given to Adam and Eve, that if they were to eat of the fruit, then in that day they should surely die. And what did Christ say? That if you follow me and if you believe in me, or if you are willing to partake of this water, the water of life that I give you, that it will be a wellspring springing up unto eternal life. So Christ was promising life, and through his death, he would bring eternal life. And Adam's promise was death. And so what Paul, it, Paul continues this imagery at the end of chapter 7, saying that I will, the, the natural man works in me to bring me to death. And this is, um, and, and Paul talks about what a wicked man that he is, right? A wretched man. And this is a, I would say a philosophical discussion rather than a personal one. Paul isn't saying that I personally am a terrible individual, that I have no control over the way that I resist temptation. Paul is an apostle, and personally, I imagine at this point in his life, he's been an apostle for more than 10 years, um, possibly much more. And he's obviously a very righteous individual, very susceptible, very willing to listen to the yearnings of the Spirit. However, uh, so this is what he's, he's speaking philosophically. He's saying the, the natural man that not only exists in all of us, but has existed throughout the history that we have in the Scriptures, the history of the Jewish people. The natural man that we can see leads unto death. So when he says, I, he's speaking almost in the sense that Adam means man. He's saying, I, a person. I am subject unto death when I listen to the natural man. And then he calls forth these images from different scriptural characters saying, look, uh, 
God was merciful under this, unto this person or group because they listened to his voice and, uh, and was willing to give them glory. And this other person or group fell out of favor of God because of their choices. One of the main points uh, or, or motivations that Paul had in writing the epistle to the Romans is to heal what he saw as this bitter division or even strife between those who had been converted to Christianity among the Gentiles and those who had first been Jews. Now, it, were, it was Jews that brought Christianity to Rome. If you remember on the day of Pentecosts, there were Jews from all over the world, all over the Roman world, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, converted, 3,000 people converted in this miraculous appearance of the Holy Ghost or this miraculous visitation. And then they went back home and they took their belief with them. And some of them remained for a time and, and lived in community with the saints in Jerusalem and then took this burgeoning faith and created a community back home. These communities became known as churches. The Roman community was a thriving one, and Jews began to join themselves to the faith as well. Uh, now, before Paul had written this epistle, the Jews had actually been uh, exiled or expelled from all of Italy. And so there was a division artificially created by Claudius, the emperor, that the, the Christian or the Gentile converts to Christianity could remain behind. So they stayed in Rome, and one can presume uh, even increased their numbers. And they began to see themselves as the entirety of that church. When the Jews then, a few years later, were allowed to return, they came back to find that the, these Gentile converts, they considered themselves the core of the church in, the, in Rome, rather than the Jews who had originally brought it there. And the things that they disagreed about were things like, how do we treat the Sabbath day? How do we treat Jewish festivals? And how do we treat the law of circumcision and the dietary laws that are contained in the books of Moses. The Jews considered those things, I mean, having been culturally reared with them and having had those things inculcated not only in their own lifetimes, but for generations and centuries, they were extremely important to them. And so Paul addresses this, and we'll get into that a little bit, but that's the um, part of the point of this epistle is for, is for Paul to point out to them that being a literal descendant of Abraham is not how you become the seed of Abraham. If you remember, the Abrahamic covenant is God promised Abraham that through his seed should all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And so it's not just his literal descendants, but it's whatever is, quote-unquote, his seed. And the reason I say, quote-unquote, is because Paul takes this word and he loads it with an extra meaning. And later on, John, when he writes the Gospel of John, would take what Paul had, this idea from Paul, and, uh, and expand upon it. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So when we get into book, uh, or the, sorry, chapter 8 of the book of Romans, then um, Paul continues his idea of comparing living under the law of Moses to living under Jesus Christ. So the the law the spirit of Christ is making someone free whereas the law almost is a prison and the prison is that the law doesn't actually bring salvation 
But when you live under Christ, you have the grace of God, this undeserved love from God that Christ is the mediator of. Christ is the deliverer of this love from God. Whereas the law was not the means whereby that love would be delivered to man. And so man under the law was still in a prison. And as we discussed in chapter 7, that it was almost like the law would awaken man's faculties of his own wickedness unto death, unto spiritual death. But it's Christ that brings us into an awareness of the possibility of salvation, reconciliation, or as we mentioned before, justification, creation of a righteous relationship between us and God. Uh, and, and so that, that idea of reconciliation, um, the understanding that we have today of what the atonement means for us, this all comes from Paul. And not just in the epistle to the Romans, but in all of Paul's epistles, he talks about how we can make ourselves right with God through Jesus. And the idea of making ourselves right with God through Jesus instead of the law is what Paul hopes will unite the Gentiles and the Jews among, among those in all of the places where he writes to. Chapter 8 is where one of the most notable, the most memorable verses uh, occurs, verse 17. So he's talking about how we've all become the children of God. Um, in verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, or Father. Abba is, is Hebrew. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this idea that we're joint heirs with Christ is found here in Romans 8:17, uh, a wonderful and very inspiring idea. And he'll expand upon that in chapter 9. Uh, another scripture, another passage worth mentioning is this question that Paul asks towards the end of chapter 8, which is, who shall separate us from the love of God? And I remember the first time I read that verse, I thought um, that he would answer the question positively. He would he would say, uh, it's sin that's going to separate you from the love of God, or it's your, own, it's your own wicked choices, or it's wicked men, or it's, you know, here's how you get separated from the love of God, and you've got to work your way back. But instead, he talks about all the things that we might pass through in this life, including sin and trial and tribulation and death. Uh, and Paul says in verse 37, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So instead of a positive answer, he gives a negative answer. Nothing. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. The love of Christ is so powerful that it can penetrate all of, our, all of the roadblocks that we throw up before it and it will eventually reach us. In other words, this, this, this is a message of hope uh, that we think that we are beyond reach, that somehow our own sinfulness is special, that, that we have put ourselves beyond the power of God to save. The message of the gospel is none of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that Christ actually is a powerful enough Savior to reach us. 
I'm reminded of the movie Amazing Grace. If you've ever, if you've never seen it, I totally recommend it. It's about a man who uh, spent his life trying to abolish the slave trade in Britain, and one of his mentors was this man who'd been a captain of a, a slave ship, and he he because of he had become aware of his great wickedness in bringing slaves to the new world he dedicated his life to god and uh one of my favorite lines from the movie says that i i have two conclusions to draw from this that i am a great sinner and that christ is a great savior and so whenever i think okay i've done something awful then i think uh this man was a slave trader i mean you can't get any worse than that and he felt the love of God that penetrated through all the years of his sinfulness and all the, all the murders that he committed and all the terrible ways in which he treated his fellow man and brought salvation and love to him. And if to him, then why not to me? God cannot be separated. The love of God cannot be separated from us. Uh, that's in Romans chapter 8. So here in Romans 9... There are a couple of competing ideas, at least in my opinion. So uh, Paul is, he's still trying to unite. He's still trying to show the Jews and the Gentiles that they come from the same tradition. First of all, through, through displaying or through citing scripture that says, it was always the plan of God to bring the gospel to all nations. Now, um, he he quotes Isaiah more than once, and he also quotes Hosea and probably other Old Testament prophets that I'm not recollecting. But one, one example that I can give you that's not in the book of Romans is a scripture you'll, you'll all be familiar with, that it shall come to pass, this is from Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains, and all nations shall flow unto it. Right? You've all heard that scripture. And as a Latter-day Saint, what you probably think of is the Salt Lake Temple when you hear that scripture, right? Because that's what we've been taught to think of. But the, the Jews reading that scripture would have thought of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And there's a specific, because the, the verse ends, the word of the Lord shall go forth from Zion and the law from Jerusalem, or vice versa. And, the, and Zion is a particular place on the hill of Jerusalem. So they would, have, they would have definitely thought that this, this meant their city, Jerusalem. That's how they would have interpreted this verse. And when it says, all nations flowing unto it, this is, a, this is a key phrase. This is a code phrase, which means people that are not Jews. All nations means those who are outside of our nation. This is just one small example. Isaiah says this many times, but so do all the prophets. They talk about all nations will eventually flow into Jerusalem when, Jeru when Jerusalem is renewed and the Lord shall bring again Zion. And the, the promises to the Gentiles, in the, the, I mean, the Old Testament is replete with these promises saying that eventually the Gentiles and the Jews will be one people. It was never meant the 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 people of God, the chosen status of God was never meant to be limited to the descendants of any one person. However, at the same time, God did promise to Abraham that it was through his seed that the earth should be blessed. And, and what Paul is saying here is when you're adopted or when you're baptized, you're adopted into the seed of Abraham. This idea did not originate with Joseph Smith. Paul is saying that you can be adopted into the seed of Abraham and then you will be one of these people through whom the world will be blessed 
by spreading the word about Jesus Christ. So the two competing narratives here in Romans chapter 9 are, first of all, the the continued examples of those, even though they should have been the receivers of the birthright, who were not. So he gives the examples of Isaac and Ishmael, of Jacob and Esau, and showing that the the birthright or the blessing or the chosen status didn't follow uh, the the bloodline, the physical birth, but it followed that that part of the progeny that were the most faithful. And then he he's saying that this process has now continued. And so there are those who are literal descendants of Abraham, and he weeps continually for his people who have not accepted Christ. Right? Paul feels himself very much part of the Jewish people, and he weeps for them, and he prays for them. But the point is, those people who have accepted Christ are now the birthright people, even though they weren't the firstborn. And so he's drawing a parallel between the situation between Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, how the younger received the birthright because they were the more righteous of the, of the children. The, the a parallel between those examples and the Jews and the Gentiles. So the Gentiles in this scenario are the second-born children who are the more, more righteous, who are now willing to receive the birthright. Now there's some scriptures that in Romans 9 you might consider problematic if you read this without um, a firm understanding of the fact that we were known of God before we came to earth, that we had a pre-mortal existence. If you read this thinking, wow, this life is all there is, you would think Paul is saying that God is a respecter of persons. On the one hand, Paul says, oh, God doesn't respect people. But on the other hand, he's saying God has chosen that some people would be righteous and some people would be wicked, and it's not really up to them. Uh, Here's one example. Uh, Verse 20. O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So, um, on the one hand, it feels like God is saying that, or that Paul is saying, God ordained people to be wicked. And they didn't really have a choice in the matter. That doesn't feel very fair. Um, but actually, read, read verse 22 again. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So continuing this potter metaphor, how he's made things into clay. Vessels are people. And God, he's saying that God, if, if some people are more fitted to destruction, or in other words, they find it harder to to be obedient, then God gives them greater mercy. Or in other words, let's say that people do come to earth with different natures, and some of them are more fitted to obedience, and some are more fitted to destruction, that God, those who are more fitted to destruction, are going to be treated by God with greater mercy. And from those who are more fitted to obedience, God is going to expect more. And this brings up an idea that we discussed last year during our Old Testament studies, that um, Tim Mackey, one of, the, one of the Bible commentators that I like to quote from, he is called the myth of religious fulfillment. And we, we talked about this when we discussed the books of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. 
which is the idea that because I'm worshiping God and because I'm really trying and because I've accepted God and I'm humbling myself, that life should go easily for me, that I should be prosperous. And in fact, this appears to be the promise in much of the scriptures that God will deliver you from your trials if you just worship him and follow him. And that is a real promise from God. At the same time, the assumption is that then life would be fair. And so that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's saying the the assumption that life is fair is not actually an accurate representation of how God works. If you think that life is going to be fair, then it's it's not true in the short term. It's not true when we look at it with our mortal eyes. It's only true when we see it with our immortal eyes. We know that God will show more, more mercy to those people who are naturally less inclined to be obedient. And we, we don't get to have all of that information now. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, when we read, you know, everything is vanity. This wasn't a pessimistic idea. And it also um, probably wasn't Solomon writing the book of Ecclesiastes, right? The book of Ecclesiastes was written, many scholars think, centuries later. It was written to be an object lesson using Solomon as a fictional narrator, saying, uh, don't you think this is all vanity for us to believe that life is supposed to be fair? Life has a meaning, but we can only find it by being humble and, and limiting ourselves to those things that we know are true, that we have control over our own choices. And the book of Job shows that Job he questioned God over and over again and, and begged God to respond. Why have I been called upon to suffer in this way? At the end of the book of Job, God actually replies, but instead of answering the question, he says, Job, let me show you some of my creations. Let me show you the complexity and the number of the things that I oversee every day. Can you do any of these things? Can you watch over animals giving birth in the wilderness? Can you create a desert and a mountain? Can you create all the stars in the heavens and all the way down to the smallest living thing on the face of the earth to the largest creatures in the oceans. And Job sees all that and he doesn't have a response. Why did it, why was I made to suffer? But then he bows his head and says, God, you truly are the greatest. You know all. And this is the point here is that life may not be fair, but God is over it all and he knows all and we are to trust him. So those are the competing narratives. One is the two birth lines, the two birthrights, or the two lines of heredity or descendancy, one of the righteous and one of the unrighteous. Instead of the, instead of the literal bloodline, it's the bloodline of choice. The second is the idea that life may not be fair from our limited perspective, but God is ultimately good. Now Paul continues these ideas in chapter 10, and I, and I want to read verse 3 to you. For they, he's talking about the Jews and how it breaks his heart that the Jews can't accept Christ. And he's talking again how they want to use their works, the, the strict obedience and observance of the law of Moses to save themselves. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So we talked about how righteousness is these, uh, has a dual uh, has two words from the Hebrew that could be interpreted, right? Right here, he, he seems to be talking about justification, the, the establishment of a right relationship between man and God. They being ignorant of God's, and now the first use of righteousness is grace. They being ignorant of God's righteousness or his disproportionate love and going about to establish their own righteousness or their own ability to justify themselves have not submitted themselves 
unto the righteousness of God. So these two ideas of what righteousness is are actually interchangeable in this verse, and it's very profitable to think about what he's talking about here. He's saying we can be justified or, or set right with God if instead of trying to put ourselves in our own ability to set ourselves right, in, instead of trying to put that first, we put God's ability to set us right with God. We put God's grace in that place. It is the only thing that actually has the ability to justify us. And the Jews are missing the point. As he says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So we, we earlier talked about the, his object lesson of a woman whose husband died, and then she's free to marry another. And my object lesson of a pilot who's training first on a simulator, but then when the time comes, he's ready to actually take flight. This is Paul's idea of what, this is where he says, Christ is the end of the law, and, and not meaning the, the chronological end, but meaning the aim. Christ was the thing that the law was always pointing to. He was the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, meaning that the law was always aiming towards Christ for us to be justified or put right with God, and all we have to do is accept him and believe, and the Jews aren't willing to do it, or the Jews that don't accept Christ this is their problem. So going back to verse 3, they're establishing their own righteousness. And as I read this, I was reminded of the parable of the pounds. You, re- you may remember we discussed this parable. It's similar to the parable of the talents, but it, it, it's these servants. A king goes into a far country, and when he comes back, he sets servants over some of his, uh, he gives them stewardship over some of his riches, and he says, when I come back, I want to see what you've done. And when he comes back, those who have doubled their worth or their investment, he puts them over 10 cities. You know, if you have these pounds, then I'll put you over, if you have five pounds, I'll put you over five cities. If you have two pounds, I'll put you over two cities. The point of that parable was that these were not profitable servants, right? They made a little bit of a return on their investment, and all of a sudden, he vastly and disproportionately increases their authority and their blessings. So this king that is obviously likened to God, is not looking to, re- to reward man according to the just rewards of their deeds. He's actually looking to disproportionately reward them. He's not looking for profitable servants, in other words. And in verse 3, Paul is describing people who want to be profitable servants. In other words, they want to be rewarded in proportion to their obedience. And Paul's point is, when have, when have the Jews throughout their history ever been perfectly obedient to the law of Moses? It never takes them very long before they're back worshiping other gods and following the, the customs and the traditions of the countries around them and having the ways of Christ and, and of Yahweh perverted. So this is what Paul means by going about to establish their own righteousness. And anytime we think that we are justified that we have put ourselves right with God, then Paul is here to to say, look, that's pride. If you are establishing your own righteousness or considering yourself to be the source of your justification before God, then you're in a grave, you're in a state of grave error because it's Christ. Christ is the end of the law. He's the one that justifies us with our belief in him. It's disproportionate. And and, and it's a good thing, too, right? It's not, 
it's not a bad thing that we need Christ to justify us because if we actually try to establish our own righteousness, then we only get the rewards that we ourselves have earned. In other words, if if the parable, if we go back to the parable of the pounds, one person started with five pounds and earns five more, well, then you get five pounds. Wouldn't you rather have 10 cities when all is said and done than just 10 simple pounds? Pounds that aren't yours to begin with, by the way. So this is Paul taking one of Jesus's examples, or at least I'm drawing the parallel between what Paul is teaching and one of Jesus's examples. He's taking the concept from the teachings of Jesus and expanding upon it. Now in chapter 11, again, Paul seems to be talking about, or he he seems to be supporting the idea that people are predestined to certain fates on this earth. And that would seem to contradict the idea that we all have agency. We have the moral agency to make our own choices and determine our own destiny. For example, in verse 2, Paul writes, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Uh, and in, in the book, he gives the example of uh, Elijah, who is praying, God, they've killed all of the righteous people, and I'm the only prophet left, and does anyone even still worship you? And then in verse 4, God answers Elijah and says, I've reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And there were, in other words, there were 7,000 righteous people still left in Israel at that time. And he gives that as an example, God reserved to himself. So Paul seems to be saying that God is the one who determines whether people are righteous or wicked. Uh, So this is an interesting chapter to read and to struggle with because we all know that that is not the real doctrine. And that so then the assumption is Paul isn't really teaching that. So what is he teaching and what does he mean? Uh, I'll leave that as, a, as an exercise for you. And I also recommend, in order to answer this question, that you read this, this chapter in one or two other translations. But it's, it's worth struggling with questions like this when they come up because they're going to come up and they're also going to come up in your discussions with uh, people who are of other faiths. And they're going to say, well, I don't believe what you believe because I'm interpreting this scripture in this way. And it's good practice if you're used to dealing with, okay, that's a real question that is raised by the, by the seeming meaning of this text. And there are, uh, there are interpretations of this chapter that do t- seem to support that. Um, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert. That really isn't what Paul means. Um, and it is, there are recourses we could make to the Joseph Smith translation, but it's actually, there are plenty of recourses within the, the original text that would support the Latter-day Saint view, and indeed the sensible Christian view, that we all have our moral agency. And it would support the Latter-day Saint view that God knew us before we were born. Um, in the final part of this chapter, he actually makes reference to uh, a metaphor between, or an allegory between the children of Israel and the Gentiles and tame and wild olive trees. <clears throat> and if you remember, this is, this is an allegory that was also made by the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob. His purpose was to show the, the, the future history of the people of Israel and especially uh, his particular branch of it, which had been broken off. But Paul's, Paul's purpose here is to show that both have their place and both are important. So a a tame olive tree is a tree whose fruit tastes good and that has the kind of oil 
and the kind of curability that was desirable in, in somebody cultivating olives. And a wild olive tree is a tree that, while it grows olives, those olives perhaps don't taste the best. They're not the, they're not the kind that you would want to grow in your garden. And so therefore, um, you, would, you would tend to try to exclude those trees from your orchard. Now, there are scholars that have said, Paul obviously doesn't understand the, this process of grafting trees because he gets it exactly wrong. The way that an ancient Israelite husbandman would have uh, grafted a tree would he would have would have been he would have taken tame branches and grafted them into wild trees because it's the branch that determines what kind of fruit will come out. the The roots supply the sustenance; they provide the nurturing, but it's the branch that actually determines the fruit. So, uh, but new but Latter Day Saint scholars. <clears throat> but Latter-day Saint scholars have pointed out or uh, advanced the theory that Paul knew exactly what he was doing, and he was using an image that was purposely wrong, right? It was surprising. Anyone hearing it would say, wait, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, tame branches are supposed to be grafted into wild trees. Why are you talking about wild branches being grafted into tame dr- trees? So Paul is likening the the Gentiles to wild branches. They come from these undesirable trees that are bearing fruit that is bitter, perhaps, and somebody is grafting in order to save the the health of the root of the trees in the in the orchard, they're taking these healthy branches from outside and they're grafting them in. And Paul's point is, look, we can be surprised because these wild branches, even though they're wild branches, they've been grafted in, and the root is what is more powerful. You Gentiles, you're the branches. Do you think that you are actually giving sustenance to the roots? No, it's the roots that are nourishing you. And the roots are so powerful that you are going to give, you've been grafted into this tree, you're going to give good fruit, which is not what somebody would expect. We would expect a branch to govern what kind of fruit is going to come out but it's actually going to be good fruit that comes from your wild branches. And, uh, and he also says, don't have so much pride then, you Gentiles, because you've been grafted into a tree that pre-existed you, and the Jews have been the ones who have brought it to you, had delivered it to you. Uh, I'm reminded of the scripture in the Book of Mormon that's, that talks about the Bible, right? And, and uh, how people in the last days would say, a Bible, a Bible, we need no more Bible. And then he says, this is in Second uh, Nephi, I believe, and then he says, would you even have a Bible if not for the Jews? Have you thanked the Jews for their Bible that they've delivered unto you, right? And so um, the, the point is, be grateful for the religious, this rich religious history that you have that has only been brought to you by the suffering of generations and centuries worth of Jews. And then to the Jews, he says, don't, don't despise these Gentiles because they're newcomers, because they're giving a lot of fruit, and also they're keeping the roots healthy so that one day the original branches can be grafted back in. So Paul simultaneously is accepting towards the Gentiles, and he's also having a lot of hope and optimism about the future of his own people, that one day they'll all accept Jesus Christ. And finally, what could be more unifying than discussing all the people of God as belonging, as being branches on the same tree? 
They're not meant to be in competition with each other, but in cooperation. So I'm going to read a few of these verses. And this is chapter 11, verse 17. If some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. In other words, you're not sustaining the root. The root is sustaining you. You're just a branch. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. So those, those branches that were broken off, they were broken off for a reason. And if you have pride, then you will also be fulfilling that same reason, and you could be broken off just as easily. So he's urging humility on both sides. And this is what is required for people to be united. He's saying we need to be united. Paul expands upon this idea. Well, let me let me put it this way. This is an expansion upon an idea that we will read later in the book of Corinthians. But Paul has already written his epistle to the Corinthians before he writes this epistle to the Romans. And you remember he talks about the the members of the church being one body. And just because you're a hand or a foot doesn't mean you can say, well, I'm a foot, and we don't need any hands, or we don't need eyes, right? Everyone is important in a body. And here he's saying every branch is important on a tree. So this is a, this is a development of that idea that we'll read a little bit later, that, I, that it is humility and unity that are important in the body of Christ. Chapter 11 is terminated by Paul writing what is called a doxology, which is a short hymn of praise to the power and mercy of God. And this is very much in the style of an ancient Hebrew prophet, an Old Testament prophet. And just as Jesus and Stephen were, took their place in the tradition of Hebrew prophets, this is an example of Paul taking his place. Um, if, you were to, if you were to include, just tack on the New Testament to the Old Testament, you would find that so much of what they've written fits right in with this tradition. If it had, written, if it had been written in Hebrew, it would fit right in. Because the way that they first make their admonishments and then make a poetic pronouncement of praise or supplication for God's help at the end is exactly how the ancient Hebrew prophets used to do it. They mixed their teachings with their poetry, and sometimes they were one and the same thing. And this is what Paul is doing. And that begins in verse 33. Uh, O the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We're going to read this again at the end when we talk about parallels with the Book of Mormon. So on to chapter 12. Paul makes an interesting request in verse 1. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is a rich, rich verse. When Paul talks about sacrifice, you might be thinking, oh, God wants me to make sacrifices for him. He wants me to serve other people. He wants me to do what's right. But when Paul uses the word sacrifice, he means one thing, and that is the sacrifice brought to the temple in Jerusalem. So when he talks about living sacrifice, this is a contradiction in terms. 
You don't bring a sacrifice unto the temple to have it be alive. The sacrifice, the lamb, is brought to the altar, and it is slain there, and its blood is rubbed on the corners of the altar or sprinkled around the floor of the altar, or it is taken into the tabernacle and sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. It has a purpose, and the purpose is the blood. The purpose is the death of the sacrifice. So Paul is requiring us to think deeply when he says, make your bodies a living sacrifice. We're meant to think, wait. How do we do that? What does that mean? When I was thinking about this, the the example from the scriptures that illuminated it the best was the example of the prophet Samuel. So if you remember, Samuel's mother Hannah was in the temple praying, God, open up my womb. I have never been blessed with children. And she receives a promise from God, you know, bring if if you will bring your firstborn unto me, then I will open up your womb. And she does. And that her firstborn is her son Samuel. And she brings him, and he's a Nazarite, or he's, he's someone pledged to God from birth. And he lives his whole life in the temple, or his whole childhood in the temple. And then his whole life is pledged to God. And so Samuel becomes this living sacrifice, someone who lives in the temple and serves God every day. Instead of dying, he's, he's still at the temple, and instead of his blood being poured out upon the altar, it's his blood, sweat, and tears being poured out for Israel. And this is what God is, this is what Paul, God through Paul is asking of us, is to make, when he says, make your bodies a living sacrifice, don't necessarily go to the temple and live there and serve your days as a high priest. However, do what Samuel did, which is give yourself to God from your birth and live your whole life in service to your fellow man, in in helping other people come unto God. This is a really powerful request that Paul is making. It's It's no light request. He's saying, change everything about your life. And when, so a lamb that was brought to the temple, if you recall, these lambs were to be without blemish. And when they were killed, no bone of theirs was to be broken, right? They were to be pure sacrifices, and that the, there's nothing wrong with a lamb that has a spot on its fleece, right? It doesn't mean that the fleece is bad or it doesn't mean that the meat is going to be any worse. Nevertheless, those lambs were not acceptable as sacrifices. The lamb had to be without external blemish. And so what sort of sacrifice are we going to be if, if we were to be delivered unto the temple and serve God all of our days? Would, be, would we be a lamb without blemish and would we be willing to dedicate ourselves to God in that way. So he says, uh, so let me read this verse again now and see if you can extract more meaning from it. This is Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So can you see now that Paul is saying how important it is for us to be truly humble because we have such an important task and a huge undertaking set before us, which is to actually serve Christ in the way that he deserves to be served so that we can be justified, we can be put in a right relationship with him. Finally, in verse 3, I say through the grace given unto me that every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. 
Paul spends the rest of this chapter exhorting us, saying, look, you've got, you've each got different gifts. If your gift is to teach, then do the best you can. If your gift is to be a leader, then you, then your job is to exhort other people to follow Christ. Whatever your gift is, you've got to do the best you can with it. We've all got an important duty. Again, hearkening back to the parable of the pounds to magnify what we have. And he says at the end, avenge not yourselves, rather give place unto wrath. If it be possible, and now we're in verse 18 and 19, if it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Now this is, this is terrible, right? But he's saying, uh, if, he, if he should continue to be your enemy after you're nice to him, then first of all, it's not your fault anymore then his condemnation will be greater. But um, the implication also is, I think, underneath, that it might, it might just be that you are reconciled with your enemy. And then as he ends this with the verse from which we get our title for this week's lesson, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We talked about this idea a few weeks ago when we discussed how Joseph told his brothers when they came to him after the death of their father, and they said, look, now we know Jacob is dead. You're going to take your revenge on us for selling you into slavery. And Joseph says, no, I forgive you. Look, look what God has done. You meant evil unto me. You sold me into Egypt. But God has taken that evil, and he has turned it unto good. Look at, look at how I've saved everyone alive. I've been, I've been the the instrument in God's hands in saving an entire nation alive. How could I have done that if you hadn't sold me into Egypt? So of course I forgive you. And this is what Paul is asking us to do, is to do what Joseph did and take evil and through our faithfulness, turn it into good. Chapter 13 is Paul's exhortation to those members of the church in Rome to be subject unto their earthly rulers. And he's even saying they're called by God to be in the positions they're in. This is one of the confusing things to the Romans about the Christian movement. On the one hand, every Christian goes around saying, our king is Christ the Lord, but also he's dead and he's alive again and he's not. his kingdom is not of this world. And so the Romans are like, wait, are they uh, an insurgency? Are they some sort of uprising? Or are they not? And then they say things like this, that your leaders, your rulers are called of God. Give, give, pay taxes to those to whom it is due. Give them your obedience. Be subject to the rule of law. Be good citizens wherever you are. This is powerful because now the, the sword is taken. Paul has just taken the sword right out of the Romans' hands. And they don't know how to deal with the Christian movement because it is, at the, at, on the one hand, they're saying, I'm not going to worship I'm not going to worship Caesar as a god. I'm not going to worship Dea Roma, this, this goddess that represents the, the deification of the Roman Empire. I'm not going to bow myself down before your idols the same way that Daniel and his brethren wouldn't bow themselves before the idols of the Persians. Nevertheless, I'm going to obey all the laws. I'm going to pay you all the taxes. I'm, I'm, I'm even going to say that God has put you in your place, and I'm going to give you a, a large amount of respect. And so the, the Romans are sort of uh, confused by this, and it, it actually ends up, I mean, eventually, obviously, centuries later, it ends up, the Christian movement ends up taking over the head of the Roman Empire. But 
while Christians are still persecuted, uh, it takes a lot of the strength out of those efforts to be able to say, no, we believe that we're following, that Rome was put in its place for a reason, and that God is behind you, and that we're following you for a reason, and we're loyal to you. It's a powerful sort of nonviolent resistance to the idolatry of the Roman culture while uh, following the, the laws of the Roman government. Now, we talked earlier about how, uh, here in verse 14, we're going to revisit this. We talked earlier about how some Jews, it was really important to them about the Sabbath, the holidays, the dietary restrictions, and circumcision, etc. And to the, to the Gentile converts, not so much. So now Paul is dealing with all of these things. He's saying some people will, uh, will observe special days and some people won't. Some people will eat only herbs and some people will eat different meats that are forbidden to others. And he's saying the people that do that, they do it unto God. The people that don't do that, they don't do it unto God. So we can see now the maturity of the doctrine that began in the book of Acts where Peter had the vision that the gospel was to be preached to the Gentiles. And then, the, and, and while that vision showed up in the form of uh, uh, an allegory or a metaphor about food, it wasn't actually about food. It was showing that people, no person, is unclean. Nevertheless, it quickly became about food because then in Acts chapter 15, they had this general conference. What are we going to do about dietary restrictions, about circumcision? And... It was decided at that time that they wouldn't be required to have it, but it was still very strongly felt that they sh- kind of should do it. And as we can see, this is um, that was probably maybe 10 years after the death of Christ. And this is now 15 years after that or 25 years later. So a lot of people consider that the, the epistle to the Romans was written in A.D. 57. And now we see that this is still going on, that people are still... Uh, disputing about this kind of idea. Should, should we force others or should we judge others by their adherence to the, to the strictures of the law of Moses, even though it's been said by church leaders that they don't have to? And here Paul is saying, look, you don't have to, nor do you have to stop. The, the real problem is if you feel that you, can, you have the righteousness or you have the moral high ground to be able to judge and look down upon somebody who believes differently than you in these things. You don't have that right. And in fact, it's actually the shame that comes from doing something you think is wrong that is the real problem. If you, and, and to support that idea, I'm going to read from verse 14 where he says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So in other words, if, if your conscience is telling you you're doing something wrong, then it's going to be wrong. You're, this shame is going to follow you. Whether or not the, it has been explicitly commanded, that you are to follow what you believe to be right in this, in this respect. Now, I don't believe that, that that principle should govern everything, right? We can't just decide to disobey commandments because we feel it's okay. But he's saying in this respect... Uh, you have to listen closely to your conscience and let it govern you. Now, how often do we have that uh, same idea repeated in our modern commandments, right? People interpret our own dietary restrictions differently. And uh, for years, people wouldn't drink Coke, and they consider it part of the word of wisdom, and they look down upon others who would, right? And the church finally clarified, look, you can drink Coke, it's just fine. 
However, if you think it's wrong, don't do it. So there are different ways to interpret our own uh, modern day analogs to these ancient customs. And we need to be, the point is we need to be patient and forgiving with each other and we, that nobody has the right to look down on anyone else. Or as Paul says in verse 19, this is Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. This, is, this has more applications than simply dietary restrictions because within the church especially, but also between church members and those maybe family members or people who are close to them who are aware of our beliefs, um, there can be times where we judge other people and we hold them to a standard that we hold our, to ourselves to. And, and Paul is saying, look, hold yourselves to a high standard, absolutely. And then be forgiving with the standard that you hold other people to. It's, it's really just so much wisdom for our lives because it will make for what Paul sees as the greatest of priorities, which is unity. Chapter 15 is sort of the culmination of this epistle. And the, the main idea of the epistle is that Christ has been waiting for centuries to create a people that includes both Jews and Gentiles. He uses Isaiah, he uses other Old Testament prophets to bring in this idea that God has always wanted to fill the earth with the seed of Abraham. Now, uh, I didn't mention it when we talked about chapter 9, but I want to read it now. Chapter 9, verse 8. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So in other words, it's not the literal descendants of Abraham, but it's the children of the promise that are the seed of Abraham. In other words, the, the people through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's the children of the promise. This idea is brought to fruition by Matthew in his gospel. Uh, well, I mean, it was originally expressed by Jesus, but Matthew brings it to us. In Matthew 3, verses, verse 9, when he says, uh, You think you're the children of Abraham. This is Christ talking to the Pharisees. But I tell you that God is capable of these stones to raise seed unto Abraham. So the idea was that it's not, it's not the literal descendancy which matters. And John expands this idea in chapter 1. So the, the introduction to the book of John, chapter 1, um, verses 12 and 13, John says, As many as received him, he's talking about the word, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the way that, um, the way that this is translated in the New International Version, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So in other words, it's not about who your literal and ancestors are. It's about your decision to believe in Christ. Then you're born of God. There are two seeds. There are two lineages. One is this literal descendancy, which is the Jews. They've been left behind. Their branches have been broken off. And the other are the people who are willing to believe. They're now being adopted into the seed of Abraham and grafted in. Now, the point of all of that is God is creating a new humanity. He's, when, you, when you're grafted in, first of all, your, your relationship with God is set right. You are now justified before God. God's righteousness, his grace, is active in your life. Secondly, you have a new family. The family of God is 
the, the lineage, the seed of God that will bless everyone. And it's now become this community. So not only do you have the marvelous heritage and ancestry of Abraham that you can pull from, but you have siblings in that heritage that may or may not be part of the literal descendancy of Abraham that you can count on for love and support. And finally, have this future where you are going to receive all of the blessings that have been promised of the new Jerusalem. So that is the community of united saints that God has always been wanting to create and now is finally creating. These these members of the early church, they very much saw themselves as living in the end times because look at the promises from the Old Testament that are now being fulfilled. Because Christ has come, because the Messiah has arrived, now the Gentiles are being grafted in and all of them are flowing into the new Jerusalem. They, they saw this as a fulfillment of God's promises for thousands of years, and so it was. And that's what's going on in chapter 15. So Paul is bringing this to a close by talking about how all of these promises are now being fulfilled, and so how do we live? Now that they've been fulfilled, what do we, what do we make of this? Um, when the point is that we're supposed to bear each other's burdens. He, he basically talks about the baptismal covenants. We're to keep these covenants with each other and minister to each other, much as the modern-day church does. In verse 1, we, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. And then Paul talks again about the rich destiny of the Gentiles to be included among the people of the Jews, and how he wishes he could come to Rome right away. He's never been there yet, remember. Uh, but he has a mission to go back to Jerusalem and deliver to them some charity that the saints in Corinth have taken up. He's going to deliver that to them. And he asks for their prayers. Please pray for me that I won't be imprisoned when I return to Jerusalem so that I can come unto you. And that, now, those prayers, that was not to be. But Paul then, even though he was imprisoned in Jerusalem, as we discussed in the book of Acts, uh, he did eventually, eventually make his way to Rome. In chapter 16, uh, this is an interesting chapter. So Paul has already, he's said goodbye to everyone, and he has uh, wished them all peace and then said amen. And then in chapter 16, we have greetings to many members of the church. This is, what I'm about to say, is a minority viewpoint among scholars, but it's one I happen to agree with, and that is that chapter 16 of the book of Romans was part of a, a lost epistle, epistle to the Ephesians and wasn't actually to the Romans at all. Um, there isn't a whole lot of external evidence of that idea, but there seems to be internal evidence, most notably uh, Priscilla and Aquila. He talks about these two people that he lived with for a time and was a tent maker with them, if you remember, we discussed them. And they actually moved from one city to another and ended up in Ephesus. And so it may be that they also traveled to Rome and Paul wrote to them there, but it may also be that there are early versions of the Epistle to the Romans that have 14 chapters and early versions that have 15 chapters and then early versions that have 16 chapters. I guess the point is there's not a whole lot of doctrine in chapter 16. It doesn't really matter what you believe about it. That's my opinion. So um, that will that's sort of the, the first pass through the Book of Romans. Now I want to talk about some Book of Mormon parallels, and this is fun. Between Romans 7 and 11, there are a number of 
Book of Mormon parallels, and I'll just read them one by one. And the first is in Romans chapter 7, verses 20 through. You might want to write these down just because I'm going to go through them quickly. And I think they're pretty profound. So this is several of the, mo- of the more notable ideas or passages from the l- latter half of Romans that are either repeated in the Book of Mormon or are written in the Book of Mormon and repeated in Romans, depending on the time frame. So uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 23 through 25 and my reference is, all I did is, if it had a personal parallel in my mind, if, it, if to me it echoed a passage in the Book of Mormon, then I'm going to mention it. So um, Romans 7, 23 through 25, to me, calls forth 2 Nephi 4, 16 through 19. And in Romans 7, Paul is saying, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity. To the law of sin which is in my members or in other words my body would would want the flesh would want to follow the law of sin but the spirit inside me wants to follow the law of god and then in verse 24 paul writes "O wretched man that i am who shall deliver me from the body of this death i thank god through jesus christ our lord so then with the mind i myself serve the law of god but with the flesh the law of sin now nephi writes in chapter in second nephi 4 Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord, in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and sins which do so easily beset me. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless, I know in whom I have trusted. That's a wonderful parallel right there. Um, And very, I mean, in my mind, very close. Same thing in Romans 8, verse 7. um, Because the carnal mind, and I would would actually say Romans 8, 6 through 10, but I'll read verse 7. The carnal mind, mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And, uh, this, the link that I have from this is to Mosiah 3, 18 and 19. But you remember that scripture. The natural man is an enemy to God and has been since the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever. Again in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth, what, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And in Alma 32, 21, uh, Alma says, Now as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. In Romans chapter 8, 31, Paul writes, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And to me that called forth uh, 1 Nephi chapter 4 when they're going to get the plates and, uh, and in First Nephi 4, verse 3, then Nephi says, Behold, you know that it's true that gods can support us. You also know an angel has spoken unto you. Wherefore can you doubt? Let us go up. The Lord is able to deliver us, even as our fathers, and to destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians. Now we discussed the allegory, Paul's allegory of the olive tree, and that is Romans 11, verses 16 through 24. And that has a parallel to the entire chapter, the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon, which is Jacob chapter 5. 
So I won't I won't read either of those, but that's uh, Romans eleven sixteen through twenty four. That's a that's a very fun parallel. Finally, the doxology that I mentioned at the end of Romans chapter eleven. I'm going to read this now. I promise to read it in its entirety, um, and then I'm going to read the Book of Mormon parallel. So this is Romans eleven thirty three through thirty six. And uh, li- listen to the words that he uses. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Now I'm going to read from Book of Mormon, Jacob chapter 4, verse 8. Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him. And it is impossible that man should find out all his ways. No man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren, despise not the revelation of God. In verse 10, this is Jacob 4, verse 10. Wherefore, brethren, seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. Back to Romans chapter 11, now verse 35. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. In other words, who gives things to the Lord so that the Lord would pay him back? It's all the Lord giving, the the idea being it's all the Lord giving to us. We don't give to God. Verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Back to Jacob chapter 4, verse 10. uh, Seek not to counsel the Lord, but to take counsel from his hand. For behold, ye yourselves know that he counseleth in wisdom and in justice and in great mercy over all his works. So that's a wonderful parallel to the doxology, this this. Hebrew style poetry, even though it's written in Greek, of Paul. And I guess my point in making all those parallels is to show that what Paul wanted, this this main idea of the book of Romans was to show that everyone is united in Christ and that when we choose to believe, when we choose to be born of God, we have a new family, we have a new future, we have a new relationship with God in righteousness. And this family of God is universal, whether you're part of the Gentiles or the Jews, or whether you're one of the branches that have been broken off and carried across the sea into the New World and live in Book of Mormon times, or whether you live in modern times, God has the same call unto us, which is to strengthen each other and to love each other, to be humble, to forgive each other. And all of this is possible because of the mercy and the grace and the loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.